It's June, and the rainbow flag is flying high. Over front porches, in front of city halls, on corporate social media accounts. But this Pride Month will be different for many in the LGBTQ community in the wake of a momentous 2020. So to mark this moment, we're turning today's episode over to an unsung Black pioneer of the movement. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is June 9, 2021. United Kingdom Prime Minister Boris Johnson weighs whether to fully open the nation even as the coronavirus Delta variant spreads there. Saddleback Church pastor Rick Warren announces his retirement after 40 years as one of the world's most influential evangelicals. And Chris Harrison is no longer going to host The Bachelor. Someone replaces Rose with basic begonias. Charles Stewart stands at the intersection of race, representation, and history. Yet his remarkable storyline hasn't received much mainstream attention, not even from the LA Times, until today. When it comes to serving California's Black, LGBTQ, and especially Black, LGBTQ communities, Charles Stewart's resume is impeccable. The native of South L.A. worked for Congresswoman Diane Watson and former California State Senator Holly Mitchell, who's now an L.A. County supervisor. He has previously served as secretary of the L.A. City LGBT Police Task Force, and he was editor-at-large for BLK, a national magazine for the Black LGBTQ community, the first of its kind. Their tagline, where the news is colored on purpose. Stewart is now retired, but we recently caught up with him to talk about his life, the state of pride today, and much more. Well, I was born in 1952, and I grew up predominantly on the periphery of the Crenshaw community, which is the main black uh, community in Los Angeles. And I, I went to public schools here. I was teased as a sissy on the school grounds, uh, and I therefore tried to win acceptance, to, to, to win inclusion, to, to minimize the ways in which I was different from other kids. And I had to take it. I was beaten up. Uh, I was um, discriminated against. I was always the last chosen kid for the, the teams in high school and high school, even though I was six foot four. And I was embarrassed and I was ashamed of it. In the 20s, I got my voice back. I claimed myself and I spoke up. And when I was 27 years old, I sat down with my parents and told them that I was gay. And then I sat down with each of my grandmothers and told them that I was gay. And their concern, of course, immediately was, well, how are you going to go to heaven? How are we going to get you to heaven? But I realized I'd won the argument because what they were doing was trying to get me into heaven, not feeling that I was damned to be excluded. And that perhaps is one of the main differences culturally uh, between the African-American community with regard to LGBT issues, with regard to children born out of wedlock, with regard to a lot of nonconformity of middle-class standards um, in this country that faced us. But I think that being black in many ways was both better and worse. Now, in the LGBT community for those of us who are people of color oftentimes that meant a non-verbal kind of acceptance and that is very common 
It's sort of like, don't ask, don't tell, particularly for in the church. When you go to the, the black church and you're going to see the organ player and the choir, and you know it's full of LGBT folks, and everybody in the church knows that, and they love and embrace them until we speak out and say that we are LGBT. In 82, uh, I was 30, and uh, that's when I got, became very involved in politics uh, in the LGBT community. And while participating in Black and White Men Together. Yeah, the National Association of Black and White Men Together is a nonprofit founded in San Francisco. Yes, City Council President Pat Russell came to one of our events and she and I talked and she stayed the evening and listened to some of the things that were going on. And when a problem developed in the Crenshaw district, specifically in, in, in the Lamert uh, neighborhood, a, a mi very middle-class black neighborhood in the Crenshaw area, as a result of the fact that one of the black gay clubs that, again, was not known by most of the streets around there to be gay because it didn't do anything, it had no signage or anything, but it was there. And what would happen is that there were still, however, a lot of blacks who were not comfortable going into a bar that, that even only gays knew catered to the LGBT community, so they wouldn't go in. What they would do is they would cruise around it, especially as it was closing at 2 a.m., they would cruise around and then pick guys up and then often go off in, into the streets and hook up and then go home to their wives or whatever, or their closets. But the point was the neighbors in the community became disturbed at noticing this. They didn't understand what was going on. There were all these gay guys who were uh, walking uh, sometimes deliberately into the shadows in a residential middle-class black neighborhood. And they complained to their city councilwoman. Well, their city councilwoman was Pat Russell and she called me and she said, I got a problem here. And before the police come in and start banging heads and before um, the African-American community concludes that the LGBT community is just being exploitative when in fact they seem to be operating out of fear of being seen, uh, can you help us? And I recruited a number of members of the Black and White Men Together organization, and we joined a community patrol. They had a community patrol, but it had one car because it could only get a few volunteers in the neighborhood that would patrol on Friday and Saturday nights and would drive around. They didn't do anything other than if they saw people who were on trespassing on people's private property, they would shine flashlights. And so we added four cars to that brigade. And that helped reduce that foot traffic. And in the meantime, I took the opportunity to explain at community meetings to African-Americans that these are not people who are seeking to harm you. These are people who are scared, who have a need to express themselves and to connect, but who are afraid to be seen, afraid to be identified. And so they, they, they wait until that club closes and people come out of that club and then they try to, to pick guys up and meet guys and date these guys. And then they don't have any place to go because most of them are closeted in their homes, so they go into the, into the nearby parts. In 1985, Pat Russell hired Charles, and that would be his first job in politics. We'll have more after this break. We're back. We've been speaking to Charles Stewart about his work with the Black and LGBTQ community. He had been working in L.A. politics before helping to start BLK magazine in 1988. 
I wrote in those days under the name L. Lloyd Jordan because I, my daytime job was working for a state senator. BLK was started by Alan Bell in 1988 and published until 1994. Though the magazine isn't around anymore, its influence continues, and the issues and stories on its pages are still being debated today. We did a story, I'm trying to find it now, it was called um, Gay Blacks versus Black Gays. And the question was, to which community did you feel your primary allegiance was owed? Did you feel that you were first African-American and only secondarily lesbian and gay? And we did a story analyzing that and asking people about it. And it was the most, it proved to be the most controversial of the many stories that we had. Being black and LGBTQ has its own struggles, of course, that not many people understand. Why was it so important to publish BLK, especially in the late 1980s? At the time, we had so few institutions like MEGLE, the Multi-Ethnic Gay Lesbian Exchange, which was an organization which brought together lesbian and gay Latinos unidos. It was the Asia Pacific Lesbian and Gay Group. It was black and white men together. And, and, and we came together in order to create a coalition of people of color within the context of the lesbian and gay community in order to let it to be known that, hey, we live intersectionally. We are intersectionality. Before the term was coined, before the concept was being bandied about, we recognized that we had no choice but to live there. Because when we went home to our families and to our neighborhoods, we were living in communities of color. But when we went out in, and, be, in, in, and expressed ourselves as lesbians and gays, then we, were at, we found ourselves overwhelmingly in white-run venues. What were some of those issues specifically in L.A. back then? Well, continued discrimination. And for instance, I was part of the, the sting operations that were done on, on the West Hollywood discos led by Studio One, which had the increasingly became super, super popular nationally. It was happening in New York. It was happening here in West Hollywood. West Hollywood was not a city yet. But what happened was Studio One in the heart of West Hollywood became the place to go and dance. Disco in the late 70s, right? But then they started asking for multiple picture IDs. Well, who has multiple two or three uh, IDs? We were young. We were in our 20s. Increasingly, we found ourselves waiting outside of Studio One and not getting inside Studio One because Studio One increasingly had an image of the kind of gay person that it wanted to be seen as and wanted to welcome and whom it felt had the discretionary income to spend the money to enrich the owner. Scott Forbes was the owner of Studio One in those days. And, and so we did a sting. We did a sting in order to, to test that discrimination. Black and white men together, of which I was the national co-chair, was uniquely equipped to do that because we could send in white people with the exact same kind of ID or none at all, and then we could send in blacks in order to, do, in order to test whether or not there was a discriminatory policy. And, uh, and oftentimes we found that there was. And when there was, we developed a protocol for dealing with that. We didn't immediately condemn them or declare them to be racist. We, we took them the evidence. We said, this is what we saw. This is what we found with your employees. Can we do employee training? Can we talk to you about this? You can't deny it anymore because the evidence is here. We're bringing the evidence to you because we would like you to work with us on talking about improvement and inclusion rather than us having to be confrontative. But we are prepared to be confrontative. We will call a press conference if we need to. And we did sometimes do that. 
you published a range of important stories. You had big names like the singer Patti LaBelle, the legend, but you also had lesser known activists like Carl Bean, the founder of the Minority AIDS Project, and he is also an important figure in LGBTQ-friendly Christianity. What kind of stories from BLK still stick with you today? Oh, gosh. Uh, the Patti LaBelle one was groundbreaking because that was a celebrity who was not a member of the community, but was a friend and ally of our community. And so we felt it was important to get her voice on the record. We interviewed uh, activists who had just discovered that they had HIV and who were coming to terms with that. We interviewed Phil Wilson, who later would found the Black Gay Institute. We interviewed uh, Cleo Monago, who um, gave a strong voice to a new and an, an aggressive movement among African-American lesbians and gays, except that he and his movement didn't want to use the terms lesbians and gays. They preferred uh, same gender loving or men who have sex with men. And so we covered those conflicts among activists within our own community as well. People can still find copies of BLK in places like the National African American Museum in Washington, D.C., the UCLA archives as well. It was just such a big loss for the, this pioneering magazine to end. Why did BLK stop? Lack of funding. Frankly, journalism was still very much driven by advertising. And at that time, many of those who, who read the, the publication didn't do so publicly. We distributed frequently to African-American bars throughout Los Angeles and throughout, and, and we began a national distribution. Yet frequently, those clubs would not showcase BLK. They would not put it beside other black publications. And yet we continued to distribute to them. But that meant that advertisers were reluctant initially to advertise with us. And so garnering the advertising dollars was always a challenge. And we had the pressure of magazines like Frontiers here in Los Angeles, which were which wanted to buy BLK. Yeah, Frontiers being a prominent LGBTQ magazine of the time. At the time, it was the premier magazine in the in LGBT community. And it's sad that, you know, already you're a minority within a minority. And then in publishing, you're yet another level of minority. And instead of having these bigger publications trying to uplift you or these establishments, they're like, nope, get back, get back. We don't like we don't need you up in the front. Right. And we were entirely a volunteer organization. So we had daytime jobs. And then in the evenings and on the weekends, we would have to write the magazine. We would have to edit the magazine, publish it, solicit advertising, and then distribute it. And as we became better and better known, distribution became a huge task because we literally drove up and down the West Coast in order to make sure that any publication, not only LGBT venues, but also black venues and other minority venues, we wanted to be there. And then we broadened out slowly but gradually and inevitably, larger and larger and larger. And finally, we just got to the point where, where uh, the demand was really there, but the advertising dollars weren't. Way ahead of its time. We'll have more after this break. Charles, in the past year, Americans have had to reckon with police brutality against black and brown people, especially in the murder of George Floyd. And then one particular area of concern is police killings of black transgender people. A 2013 report by the Anti-Violence Project found that trans people are 3.7 times more likely to experience police violence. And the figure is even higher for black transgender people. And this has been a largely untold uh, epidemic until this past year. Why do you think cis people are just finally paying attention to this? 
because we've always been both the vanguard and yet at the same time ridden in the back of the bus of the LGBT movement. By that, I mean trans people, but by people of color. We all know, we've all read the stories that as at Stonewall in 1969, those who led the revolt against the police raids, against, against the discrimination, the persecution, were men and women and trans people of color. And yet, as soon as they did so, they were cast aside, marginalized, because frankly, too many of our community were still embarrassed about trans people. Uh, there was, uh, was it Marsha Johnson and Sylvia Rivera? I, those are the two names I remember. Yes, you're correct. They inspired many, and yet the movement as it existed, as it was progressing, was really focused upon mainstreaming. And the mainstreaming effort generally favored those who were moneyed, who were white, who were male. They were the ones who were the at the least distance, at least in their own minds, from the mainstream LGBT community. And so the rest of us had to, had to scamper and scurry as best we could to get our issues addressed and to get our voices heard. I mentioned earlier that you were in a task force to address police violence back in the 1980s in Los Angeles. It's now 2021. Can you put that relationship between police and the LGBTQ black community in perspective? The LGBT community in many cities would organize some kind of an effort to dialogue with our local police about discrimination and about being protected from harassment, the two twin issues that perpetually plagued us. And yet, most of the time, the police resisted working directly with the LGBT community. San Francisco had a police advisory task force. Los Angeles formed one in, in, in 1982. We were formed to give the training. We did that. We, we developed all kinds of protocols for better training, better relations. We brought together people of color. We, got, we brought together different communities and the LGBT community and above all law enforcement. And yet you have to keep doing that over and over and over. It's never enough. The other big story of 2020, of course, was the coronavirus pandemic. And for those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s, it's not hard to find the similarities and the disparities in the public's reaction to COVID-19, especially among people of color with HIV and AIDS. You would think, once again, the experience that we garnered in fighting HIV and fighting AIDS and continue to fight would automatically make us elders in the efforts to resist the pandemic. And yet, once again, we're not there. Our voices aren't consulted. And yet we, above all, have the experience of not only of the trauma itself, of, the, of managing the loss, of waiting for the science to bring us relief and help, but also of how to survive, how to help those who are, who are still here, and how to care for those who, are, who, we've, who we've lost. And yet the pandemic shows that we haven't learned enough of our lessons. Dr. Fauci perhaps is the most prominent voice that has emerged um, as a result of really the lessons he learned and that we taught him, quite frankly, uh, through HIV. And, and he's come to prominence and yet comes under fire precisely because he brings some of that wisdom. He's been very outspoken about how he was clueless until he finally listened to the LGBTQ community who just let him have it back then. And he listened. He listened and he became a very important ally in the fight for HIV. And in this case, you know, he seemed to have had that same position with coronavirus. And yet, as then, as today, he was criticized for, for, for trying to help humanity, basically. 
And that is amazing to me because it really does mean we don't learn our lessons. And I don't know whether or not that is because our voices continue to be focused on fighting battles just to survive, just to ensure that lesbians and gays who are still at risk, still contracting HIV, particularly among African-Americans, HIV remains an, uh, an epidemic. So we're still fighting that battle on that front. And yet here we are, we barely pivot, we're faced with the pandemic, we're faced with coronavirus, and yet it's not new to us. We recognize this challenge, we recognize this problem, but somehow we're not consulted. Charles, there's going to be Pride events all over the world this month in June. The one in L.A. starts this coming weekend. But nevertheless, there seems to be this continuing debate about whether Pride should be, quote, family friendly. So online, you're hearing people talking about taming down supposed nudity. And I wonder if this debate is also happening within the LGBT community as well. It certainly is. And it's not new. After Stonewall in 1969, there began to be a groundswell of activism from LGBTs who were tired and weren't going to take it anymore and stepped out. And in 1978, we began marching. 1971 was actually the first march that began here, led by Morse Kite, here in Los Angeles. It was a march. It wasn't a parade. It was a protest march, protesting discriminatory treatment, protesting the kinds of things that were going on at the patch, at the Black Cat, exactly as what had happened at the Stonewall. And, and that was what it was. But one of the things that happens is that as a movement develops visibility and even some success, we begin to celebrate. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's appropriate. It's just not enough. It doesn't mean we can stop. It means we have to continue. But it does mean that many of those who weren't there for the initial early battles now participate believing it was always a parade, never a march. They don't understand that it was the vanguard of a movement, not simply a day to go out and, and do whatever you want. But one of the ways we were very clear that we had learned as a result of supporting and participating in many of us in the civil rights movement was to be to claim all of who we are. And finally, we can't let you go without saying that in 2017, the California State Senate passed a resolution honoring your career for LGBTQ rights, for black rights, for just the rights of all Californians, really. I'm sure that was a particularly special moment for you. It, it was because I was the first African-American person and therefore by uh, the first person period who was an openly gay staffer to elected officials. And that was in 1985 when I began to work for city councilwoman Pat Russell. And from there, many, many more staffers came along and that brought more people out. That led to people running for office as out of the closet. There were elected officials who were lesbian and gay. They were simply closeted, but gradually we moved forward. I am proud to say that I participated in that from the, the late seventies all the way until my retirement. And now I'm proud to hand that baton forward <laughs> and to so support those who continue to fight for rights and for acknowledgement and for our culture, the culture that has evolved, that is a culture of freedom and celebration as well as a culture of advocacy. Charles Stewart, thank you so much for what you've done, what you do, and for speaking with The Times. Thank you. Gay pride, always and forever.
And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, there's rumors that LA Mayor Eric Garcetti will be headed to India. Joe Biden may make him ambassador to that country. What does this mean for the city in California? And what do Indian Americans think about the possible appointment? Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our editors are Julia Turner and Shawnee Hilton. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. And our theme music is by Andrew Eben. I'm Gustavo Arellano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>